well, interestingly, you don't have to have a background in psychology or mental <laughs> health for you to understand what resilience is. In fact, one of the most common metaphors that we attribute to resilience is that of bouncing back. But as a PhD researcher, I realized that when you dig deeper into the literature, it becomes more complicated, um, simply because there's no consensus. Hello, and welcome to the Race Mob Podcast. This is episode number 78. I'm Kevin, entrepreneur, technology, and fitness nerd. And I'm joined by the head coach of Race Mob and master motivator, the incomparable Bertrand Newsom. What is resilience? Is it an inherited trait or a learned skill? And if it's learned, how do you build more of it? Well, why not ask the person that's literally researching it right now? Dennis Rilojo Howell should know a ton about resilience. In fact, he grew up from meager beginnings in the Philippines and through hard work, determination, and skill was able to make his way out of poverty. He's now living in England and is the founder of PsychReg, the world's first blog for psychologists. This conversation really took some unexpected turns, but it was so much fun connecting with a fellow entrepreneur. What Dennis helped me realize is the importance of reflecting on your own experiences. Whether that be through blogging, social media, podcasts, or video, the ability to reflect and share can help you build on your own resilience. In 2022, we're really exploring more avenues to help you leverage Race Mob as your creative outlet. So if you'd like to get involved, please reach out to me or Bertrand. Unfortunately, Coach B couldn't make this conversation due to a scheduling conflict, but don't worry, we'll continue with our normal format going forward. All the show notes can be found online at racemob.com slash podcast. And without further ado, here's our conversation. Hello, Race Mob audience. We are so pleased to welcome Dennis Rilojo Howell to the Race Mob podcast. Welcome to the show today, Dennis. Well, thank you, Kevin, for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here on the Race Mob and hopefully your audience can learn a bit about me and what I do, and hopefully it would add value to um, their mental health, their, their lifestyle, and their well-being. Fantastic, fantastic. And Dennis, remind me again where you're coming from. It's, it's Essex, right? Yes, yeah, so I'm based in a town called Essex, some obscure town in Britain called Essex. So I live about um, half an hour in central London. Fantastic, fantastic. And when did you move there? Because I know that you grew up away from there, yes, right? Yes, so I was originally born in the Philippines and I moved here about 10 years ago. I first came to England to do my master's degree and ended up meeting my husband conveniently. And then uh, we got <laughs> married and then I'm here. Fantastic. And I know you've, you've talked a little bit about your childhood and, and how mm -hmm. that has impacted you mm -hmm. and, and professionally and, and leading you into blogging and all of that. So, I mean, talk to us a little bit about, yeah, childhood, growing up. Yeah, I, I think the best way to take you to the kind of trajectory of my life would be to share to you the place where I grew up. So I was born in the Philippines. I, my, I spent my formative years in, in Islam in the Philippines. My childhood involved, you know, there's no running water, there's no electricity, there's no television. I did not know how it was to sleep on a bed until I was 15. But I look at my childhood without any regret. And when I share it to people, I don't want to convey it like being melodramatic or trying to signal victimhood. I look back on my childhood with, with a sense of gratitude. And I, I think 
I've also benefited from growing in that kind of environment because it shaped me the way I am. And that leads me to researching on resilience um, because resilience form a big chunk of my life. If, if you grew up in an environment like that, you can't really afford to, you know, to be not, not resilient. So that, that's, I suppose that's the main highlight of, of the trajectory of my life. I have to say thank you to a lot of things, a lot of people who has been instrumental in changing the course of my life. My parents, they instilled in me the value of blogging. Also my teachers, they were very instrumental in me in instilling the value of education. And also, in- incidentally, blogging also played a significant role in my life. It did not just become a creative outlet, but it allowed me to earn a living without bragging. Blogging allowed me to pay off my mortgage um, at the age of 30. So that that's the kind of impetus that my research is doing right now. I'm trying to teach young people the value of resilience and at the same time trying to share the, the value of blogging, not just as a creative outlet, but as, as a psychological intervention. That's fantastic. Yeah. And I, I know... My parents also went through a lot of resilience and, and, you know, they grew up in Taiwan in a very rural area of Taiwan. My mom specifically, you know, very poor, living with several, several relatives and finding a way to dig her out of, you know, that situation into getting higher degree, bringing herself over to the United States. You know, my dad as well, being able to, to come over to the U.S. in the 70s. And so I guess that sense of like always working hard, the resilience that they face has always been instilled in part into into me. And so I really do relate to your story. And, you know, and I just say, wow, (laughs) major, major, like, I, I just can't tell you how how much I look up to, you know, the amount of effort and work that you put into it. And, you know, it's not always easy. And so that's fantastic. So yeah, I want to dig into into resilience. I want to dig into, you know, you've done, not only have you lived it and be, and done it, but you are now researching it and you are now um, bringing a lot of the research to the forefront. So talk to us, what have you learned? What are some of the things that people may okay. not understand or, or know? Yeah, well, interestingly, you don't have to have a background in psychology or mental <laughs> health for you to understand what resilience is. In fact, One of the most common metaphors that we attribute to resilience is that of bouncing back. But as a PhD researcher, I realized that when you dig deeper into the literature, it becomes more complicated um, simply because there's no consensus, you know, speaking from the standpoint of resilience research, there's no consensus as to what the psychological construct is. You know, some resilience researchers think that it's a trait, some resilience researchers think that it's a skill, and others say that it's a process or it's an outcome. And as part of my ongoing research, that's what I'm trying to find out. And so for my my, my PhD research involves four phases. And I just finished, I, I did not yet finish. I'm still about to finish the first stage of my research which involves trying to ask what young people, especially were still in the midst of the pandemic, what do they think about resilience? Not just, you know, from, from a scientific point of view, but them as a person, what do they think about resilience? So I, I want to capture that. And that would hopefully inform me what's the best way to create a psychological intervention is blogging as a psychological intervention, will it be viable in promoting psychological resilience? So that's 
the kind of thing that I'm looking at. Yeah, but just to go back to your question, yeah, it, in a nutshell, there's really no consensus if, if you are asking resilience researcher what that psychological construct is. But personally, I would love to convey the message that resilience is actually a skill because I think that's a more salubrious message that if you say to people that it's a skill, it's something that you can develop, that inspires people to be more resilient rather than telling people that it's actually a process and it's actually an outcome. So you have you, you, you miscommunicating resilience. You, you're telling people that you have to undergo um, an adversity, a, a complex life event for you to demonstrate resilience rather. And on the other hand, if you're going to say that resilience is actually, that's not also a healthy message because you're going to say to people that it's either you have it or not. I, I want my research to, you know, to, to have a good takeaway that people can learn something that I can actually cultivate it. So, so that's that's my notion of resilience. That's that's where I'm coming from. Just just to give a bit of a context, so I'm doing a PhD in clinical psychology and positive psychology. So that's kind of, you know, my my notion of resilience. We have to give a more positive and more healthy message. That's great. Yeah, and and actually, it's interesting because if I were to take a look at the sample size of our previous podcast guests, you know, I mean, I think that you're going to find different pockets of people that I 100% believe that resilience can be learned, grit can be learned, right? And so, you know, we have a lot of athletes who are much later in life. Bertrand and myself, you know, Bertrand started in his 40s running and endurance sports and athletics, right? We had people who have lost hundreds and hundreds of pounds, 200 pounds, 300 pounds, much later in life getting into it and, and finding, you know, finding their speed and finding you know, running as that outlet, endurance sports as that outlet. We've had people that have been, you know, addicted to alcohol and drugs for many, many years, and then finding this as one of these outlets in order to overcome some of those addictions. So I do think that it's interesting that, you know, we can find people that have learned these traits later in life who have, you know, and sometimes, sure, some of it is innate. You know, I don't know if any of these elite, elite athletes you know, the way that they can push through pain, the way that they can push through and create mental models that will, you know, get them to the finish line in the amount of, you know, intensity that they're getting it in. Um, sure, some of that may be innate or maybe learned at a very, very, very young age, but it's it's really interesting. I mean, you know, if I were to take the sample size of our guests um, who have come onto the show and who have been podcast guests, they may, they may become yeah, yeah. <laughs> interesting takeaways for your research. Absolutely. Yeah, but, but just to touch up on what you said, Kevin, that, that's the good thing about resilience, because you can actually see the real life application in there. I, I think psychology is w one, one of those disciplines that people sometimes think that so we're studying some really esoteric construct that don't have real life <laughs> application. But like what you've said, you know, resilience, it, you, you can see its application with elite sports, developing grit, especially for young people, you can see its real life application. Um, Just another thing that I want to add, it, it might also be you know worth um looking into whether resilience also is cultural without playing into stereotypes you know maybe people of certain ethnicities they're more you know maybe because it's something to do with with cultural or societal expectations they're known to be more resilient have you seen that to be true <laughs> at all or i, I don't know um, i mean is that i i don't know how to best phrase this without sounding too political because you you get this 
you 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 hear more more of this in in Western culture, you know, like snowflake, but you don't get to hear that in in other cultures. I live in five countries before coming to Britain, so I have a lot of comparisons. There's the last place that I've lived. I live in Singapore before coming to Britain, and certainly you won't really associate, you know, wokeness or or snowflakiness <laughs> into Singaporean culture. It, it's just different, and in, in Western culture, so I I think it's just. My theory that sometimes societal expectations also play a role on how you conceptualize resilience, and also I'm probably all, also owing to my Chinese heritage. Yeah. <laughs> no, I yeah, I, I think it's a it's a conversation worth having for sure because you know what we've seen in endurance sports is that it is primarily Caucasian dominated, right? And so how do you how do you diversify the sport? How do you actually you know, get get more minorities into the sport. And so we've had a lot of conversations with, again, president of the RRCA. We've had conversations with, you know, really pillars of the organizations that are trying to make a difference. Bertrand and, and Matt, we just had Matt Fitzgerald on last week, and they're creating a Coaches of Color initiative. But really, the only way that you can start introducing diversity in the sport is by having experts and coaches that look like you, sound like you, that can bring you in, right, and make you feel welcome and, and warm. That's one of the ways to to start fostering a community of inclusiveness in general. The, the other issue I think that we're coming into is endurance sports in and of itself, it takes a lot of time, right? And so if it takes a lot of time and you don't have a lot of time because you're working, you know, long hours, long jobs, it can be difficult to introduce yourself to a sport that that takes, you know, a, a quite a bit of your time. So there are other, you know, factors at play, socioeconomic factors at play for sure. But it is interesting to see. And, and I, I, I wouldn't know, you know, if there are if there are differences in terms of, you know, the, the makeup or the resilient nature or any of that. But I do think that there are other things probably playing into, you know, why we don't see a lot of diversity in our sport in general. I think, yeah, it's, it's important that we try to, you know, have as many role models as possible. But I think I, I'm, I'm not sure we, we, we would agree on this, but I think it's, it's, it's healthy that we don't really um, agree with everyone. Because my idea is that we don't just have to engage in diversity, be it sports or positive role models in psychology or mental health, just for the sake of, you know, diversifying it. You know, I, I think the, the word for that is like, you know, just just having a token. I think it's, it's important that above anything else, whether someone looks like you specifically looks like someone else, it's important that the role models that we you know, we put in these platforms be- because of their merit. That that that's 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 how I think about it. In, in particular, I don't really like. I'm one of those people. Like, let's say, I- I'll try to connect it with what I do. So, as as a resilience researcher, I don't particularly look for someone. Do do I you know follow his work because he looks like me? I I I don't do that. I I try to you know assess your work because of its merit not because you look like me because it would sound really superficial just to give you a very crude example let's say I go to a conference and then the way I would assess someone's you know quality of work do I do like does he look like me do we have the same same skin tone (laughs) do you know what I mean I I, I understand where you're coming from that we have to diversify you know a role model I would I would I would agree with you on vast majority of cases 
But when you look at the industry and it is, you know, 92% Caucasian and, and 90, you know, six or 7% of race directors are, are, are white males, right? Then you have to take a look at, oh, is there some sort of unconscious bias happening here? And can we be looking, should we be looking at things at a different way, right? Because whoever sets the merit criteria if they are, have some sort of unconscious bias in, in terms of how they're setting that merit criteria on who can become coaches, do you have enough money to become a coach, you know, all these other things, then they may not be looking at it, you know, in a way that could actually help diversify the for, sport, include uh, more into the fold, right, of the sport. So I think it's interesting. I think that, you know, we've talked to a lot of people. I think there's a lot of opportunity, right? A lot of areas of opportunity as well. If you take a look at, you know, really there's untapped potential in a lot of population because there doesn't, it doesn't take a lot of money to be able to run, right? You need a pair of shoes, a good pair of shoes probably, but you know, you, it can, you can get a lot of joy, a lot of benefit, a lot of other things out of the sport in general. So I think it's interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I just want to add on that this uh, Filipino, cause I'm originally from the Philippines. So I have two samples would come from that. There's um, a weightlifter, um, Heidelin Diaz. I'm not sure if I remember her name right, but she's the first gold medalist to, to win in the Philippines. And I sort of learned about her background. She comes from a poor um, family in the Philippines. And so there was no, you know, like so there were no expensive, there were no resources to, to support her with her, you know, cho- chosen career. But because of determination and also, some kind of people who supported her. She she managed to you know win a gold medal for the country. And yeah, I I I, I do see the point that you know we have to you know make equal representation when it comes to when it comes to talent. Ultimately, your hard work, your your dedication will speak for itself. Well, do you have any tips, any anything that our athletes can take? You know, you you have gone about this and talked how resilience may be a learned trait. And so if it is a learned trait, are there are there things, mental models, anything that you think may help some of our athletes? My um, top tip would be it might not sound as straightforward, especially if you're athletic, but my top tip would be to find a creative outlet. I'm not saying it should be blogging, but it could be other forms of, of creative outlets, be it, you know, like painting. Because um, ultimately, while you're trying to improve your physical strength, you also have to look after your own mental health. And creative outlet could be a form of self-care. You need a sort of distraction from the usual things that you do. Say, for instance, because I don't, I don't have any athletic stuff. I, I, I don't do any of that. Most of the times I'm just, you know, looking at screen. So usually during weekends, I try to kind of, you know, make something different. So I go for a walk and that's the most probably physical activity that I would do and gardening. So if you're on the other side, you're more athletic, try to do something more creative. Try blogging or podcasting. Talk about, you know, how you can inspire more people to be more athletic. Yeah, that, that's my number one tip. Look for a form of self-care. Talk to us a little bit about blogging. I mean, you've, you've said that it has changed your life. And so talk to us about your blog, how it got started, you know, the the trajectory of your blog. And I'd love to dive into tips for, for others who are looking to potentially start a blog or, yeah, to learn from you. Yeah, so um, blogging, for those who are not familiar, the, the technical definition of blogging with of, of a blog is a platform that 
consistently gets updated like a journal. So I think one of the key characteristics of a blog is that it's conversational and it's not, you know, when you compare it to other mainstream websites, they're less formal. And also you have more control of what kind of contents that you put there. So that's why we have all sorts of genre when it comes to blogging. And so I started blogging probably about um, 15 years ago. That shows my age now. So I started blogging when WordPress was launched. And initially I just started as a personal blogger. When I say a personal blogger, you know, one of those people kind of share what happened during the, the day. And they just talk about their opinions because when I was younger, I was quite political. So I share things about what what I think about politics. And then eventually, I think about five years, I transitioned into travel blogging. When I was in my mid-20s, traveling to Southeast Asian countries, and I just wanted to kind of chronicle my experiences, my adventures, and also give tips. And then that's the time that I realized that you could actually monetize content. And so that's the time that I started to earn from blogging. And then when I came here in Britain in about 10 years ago, while I was doing my master's degree, I wanted to kind of complement my blog with actually what I'm doing because I thought it doesn't really make sense that I'm studying psychology and then I'm creating content about travel. So I ended up travel blog and I switched to psychology blogging. And then, yeah, long story short, I still managed to monetize the content. And then last year, I set it up as a company. And so I now I manage a small team of five people. It may just sound, you know, just like it's a hobby, but it could actually be, you know, a form of, it, it could generate income if you do it the right way. Yeah, there, there are different ways of monetizing content. So, you know, who knows, probably some of your listeners who's got the um, interest in creating contents about athleticism or trying to, you know, encourage people to be a good role model. They could also create contents around those genre. If you like our podcast, then sign up for our newsletter where we give you weekly tips on how to run your best race and have fun in the process. Just go to racemob.com and sign up today. Yeah, I mean, talk to us a little bit about, you know, you've now monetized basically two blogging sites. What what are some of the gotchas or the how-tos? You know, I, I, I think it, yeah, would be interesting to, to learn yeah, more so about that. Yeah, so I monetize two platforms. I First, I monetize SiteRich. I... I love to describe myself first as, as a social entrepreneur. And the reason why I'm this I'm saying this is I don't want people to have the wrong the wrong impression that I'm actually monetizing mental health content. I'm actually funding a, a school in the Philippines. That's where some, some of our incomes go. So that some some of the earnings goes to that school project and the other is just to sustain the website. Yeah, but just to ad- address your main question, how what are the know-hows? First, you have to get lots of traffic because, you know, eyeballs are money. Without eyeballs, you can't monetize anything. And there are things that you can do to um, get eyeballs. First is SEO, search engine optimization. So 
you make your content Google friendly. So every time someone searches for a specific keyword, it lands on the first page of Google because that's very important if you're a content creator. And then you also get some sponsored content. You know, so these are people who wants to, you know, target a specific market, target specific audience. So about three years ago, I started this Christmas wish list. And so obviously, they, I, I get something in return for putting them on that list. So that's an example of sponsored content. Another thing that I monetize is my YouTube channel. But I hate to slag off Google, but you don't really get earn a lot from, you know. Yeah. I have amount of subscriber, but even so, I was expecting that, you know, if I get X number of views, perhaps this will be something. But full disclosure, probably I earn just about six quid, 10 quid a month from a YouTube um, channel. But yeah, that, that's fine. It, it's something that I enjoy doing. Uh, yeah, so those those are the main ways that you could monetize the content. But it, it may sound cheesy, it may sound cringy, but ultimately you have to have a genuine passion and genuine interest for what you're creating, be it, you know, psychology, be it resilience or be it sports. Because without that, you know, it's, it's not just the, the income that, you earn from it that will, you know, sustain that the platform, you, you need to have a genuine interest. Yeah, love it. And I, I know, you know, behind the scenes here at Race Mob, we've been looking at blogging content, YouTube content, obviously podcasting content, you know, we've we've gone through uh, a multiple iterations of all of these things. And it's not always easy, but it is a great creative outlet, right? It is great to be able to sit down at a computer and and be able to dive in and research something and be able to share that with an audience, be able to talk about topics at a high level and be able to help people, you know, especially looking back 10 years when I started running, I didn't know a lot of these things. And so, you know, is if one tip or two tips can really help our audience get to the finish line or get to that first event, you know, it, it, it's all the more meaningful, I think. So I think that's great. Talk to me a little bit. You said you now have a team of five. So how do you how do you go about hiring people, funding things? Do you have you found others that are just passionate about the space looking to to be writers in the space or are you actually talk to me a little bit about like that whole process yeah, so my team mainly consists of um a video editor they're all freelancers by the way so i have um a video editor because i'm not very good with editing video so i need a helping hand to manage that and then i have two social media two so social media people who help me you know spread spread the content on various platforms, social media platforms. And then I have one who is a content um, creator. So um, helps me with publishing content. And I have one who helps me tweak the website. Um, yeah, so, th so those are the people behind the scenes. So it's not just me all day long. Yeah, so, so basically what, what I earn from ads, is that that's my main source of um, income. Ads helps to, you know, pay, pay these people who help me and also um, support the my 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 projects yeah cool yeah yeah so uh, we have very similar paths i mean you know we have over here on race mall we have a podcast editor we had a video editor when we were doing youtube content you know we have a number of contributors to the the blog and the website as well and so yeah it's interesting to see you know even halfway across the world how similar our lives are and and you know what we've dove into. So probably a lot more conversations I'd love to have offline on, you know, what is working for you, what, you know, what we can do a little bit better. What well, one thing I do want to dive into, though, is you mentioned blogging as a great way to have 
creative release, right? Or, you know, just a great creative outlet for users. So, I mean, talk to me a little bit about the benefits of blogging, whether that be a personal blog. You know, we dove into the monetized blog. Everybody usually starts with some sort of personal blog or blogging for yourself, I think, is is really important. And so talk to us a little bit about, you know, the benefits of blogging. Well, the, the psychological research about the benefits of blogging actually predates the internet because there's a psychologist by the name of James Pennebaker. And in the early 80s, he he did a study which found out that those people who engage in what he calls expressive writing, it's good for their physical health and it's also good for their psychological health. One thing that he found out is that if you give people a chance to express themselves through writing, especially talk about their psychological trauma, it improves their sleep and it also manage their, manages their anxiety. It lowers their blood pressure. So, but that, that was before the internet. But I think whether you, you express yourself through traditional writing or through blogging, I would suspect the effect would be the same. There's a research done in 2013 by two psychologists called Bonil Nissim and Barak. And they're actually my, my heroes because they're the first psychologists to have demonstrated that blogging could actually confer a range of psychological benefits. So what they did is they invited 150 young people and then they asked them to blog for about three days. And what they found out is that it, it's, it's good for young people to express themselves through blogs. It, it manages their social emotional difficulties, especially those um, students who are introvert. So I would, I would love to extend that work, but in particular, I'm looking into the viability of blogging as a way to improve resilience. Yeah, that, that's, that's what I'm looking to. Yeah, and that, th- those are, those are the, the, the psychological benefits of blogging. But of course, it has its downsides. You know, cyberbullying is one, you know, trolling. Before, when I initially set up PsychRidge, because I... I Invite people to write mental health stories for Psychridge. Yeah. By the way, I, I do pay my contributors. I, I, I pay them. It's just a small sum of money, but it's something in exchange for their time. But anyway, be, before when, when I, you know, when I published these mental health stories, the comment section are open. And then I just found out that it's quite unfair for people who share their mental health journey because they get bullied. And I don't have all the time and space to moderate all of those comments. So I now close the comments. So on Psychrage, you can't leave any comments. So yeah, I think that's just one of the ways that you could minimize the risk of of blagging if it's going to be your chosen psychological intervention. And another benefit of blagging is that it improves literacy. There are now many teachers who encourages the student to create their own blog, especially during the pandemic, you know, it's, it's, it's more, ex- internet's more accessible than ever. So a lot of people are starting to create blog. And interestingly, you know what, Kevin, talking to young people as part of my research, my notion of blogging is somehow different with the notion of blogging. Like earlier in the conversation, I told you that my idea of blogging is you know, you, you express yourself through writing in an informal way. And when I was talking to these young people from Philippines, um, some of them actually don't differentiate between blogging and social media. For them, it's just different. But yeah, that, that's one thing that I look at, how how the definition of 
blogging has changed over time. But you know, what one one of the um, emerging themes that I've discovered is that you know whether they see blogging as social media or whether they see blogging as a way to express yourself through writing, they consistently see blogging as a form of um, self-expression, as a form of creative outlet, and also as a way to connect with like-minded individuals. And I, another thing that I, I want to share to you about the benefits of blogging is that I can't remember the research on top of my head, but there was a research that young people, they would rather read a blog about mental health rather than talk to a mental health professional. So, so that's, that's, that's very telling. In, in fact, I'll share to you that demonstration, if you will. Um, well, one of the most um, visited blog, psychology blog today, Psychology Today, I, I don't know if you've heard of it or your listeners. And one of the most visited psychology, I'm sorry, not most visited, one of the most prestigious psychology journals, Psychological Bulletin. Now, there's a website called similarweb.com and it allows you to check how much traffic a website gets in a month. So if you put Psychology Today alongside alongside Psychology Bulletin, you will see a massive difference in traffic. So Psychology Bulletin, the last time I checked, they get about 1 million in a month. Whereas Psychology Today, they get about 12, 25 million views. Now that's the trend for textual blog, but you would also see a similar trend in video blog. Say for instance, the YouTube channel of American Psychological Association, which is the biggest psychological body in the world. The last time I checked, they have about 40,000 subscribers. And then the British Psychological Society, which is the largest psychological body in Britain, they have about 12,000 YouTube subscribers. And then there's this Canadian mental health blogger who just, you know, one of these young people who just records their video on the bedroom. And she has about 3 million subscribers. Her name is Mark. <laughs> Um, it's not really a competition of who's got the most likes, who's got the most subscribers. But what I'm saying is that when you're trying to design an intervention where, and you're targeting a particular demographic, young, young people, these are trends that you cannot ignore. Um, what mm-hmm. I'm saying is that mm-hmm. you, you cannot ignore the fact that a lot of young people, they would rather read mental health blogs or they would rather listen from individual content creators rather than mental health charities or psychological bodies. So these are facts that you cannot ignore. These are trends that you cannot ignore. It's so interesting. And I think that it can be extremely tough, right? We encourage people to blog for a creative outlet, right? To vlog, to create, you know, photos, to to create videos, probably for their own benefit and, and, you know, to to have this outlet of, of creative ideas. And yet there's kind of a juxtaposition between wanting to get views, wanting to get likes, wanting to, you know, really get a wider audience. Right. And so and I don't know if that's a healthy balance all the time. Right. Like the blog that you may create for yourself and your own benefit versus the, hey, if I want to be a YouTube creator, I've got to post two videos a day. I've got to do editing till all hours of the night. I have to have well-defined scripts and, you know, tight, concise, five minute you know, things. And, you know, and it's interesting because we do take a look at some of these outliers of, hey, this one person in their bedroom, she has 3 million subscribers, but we don't know what had to happen behind the scenes, you know, what serendipity, every action, because for every one of those, there's probably millions and millions that tried to do this, but has, you know, a viewership of one or two and may give up after time. So I don't know if there's any 
if you have any thoughts in terms of like, yeah, 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 you know, there, we want to encourage people to have this outlet, but we want to encourage you to have this outlet too for yourself, you know, probably more, more so than just to get the views and just to get the people out there. But yeah, that, that's a, that's a good point, Kevin. So yes, that there's one, you know, idea that you blog for your own, you know, for, for your own psychological benefit. And you also blog to kind of create your own audience. And ultimately, of course, if you have your own audience, you would, you would monetize it. But we also have to realize that, you know, blogging uh, or content creation or however you want to call it is not a perfect platform. In fact, one of the most criticisms of blogging is that it's pop psychology, you know, that some of the people who get most of the views, and I'm not referring to the individuals that I mentioned earlier, who get most of the views, that that the contents are not based on science, it's not empirically based. So we still have to rely to, you know, established authorities like the American Psychological Association or psychological bodies. But what, what I'm saying is that Content creators, they have their own role to play. Perhaps there's something with them. Perhaps there's something with their delivery, something with their presentation of their contents that allows young people who are, who are experiencing, you know, a mental health issues that allows them to, 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 re- to relate to them. And I think that's one thing that these authorities and, and charities can learn from, that perhaps you have to make your content more engaging, you have to make it more conversational because, you know, the, the field of psychology, the field of mental health, it's not there to serve researchers. It's not there to serve academics. Your target audience should be the people who could directly benefit from your research, from your output. That, that's what I'm saying. But of course, we have to strike a balance between creating and engaging content and a content that is based on science. And without sounding self-serving, because the, the end goal of my research project is to create a blog that encourages young people to see resilience in a different way and to cultivate resilience. I could easily do that. You know, I don't have to do a PhD to do that, but I want my research to be informed by modern psychology, to be backed by science. And that's the reason why I did a PhD. I don't have any ambition of being an academic when I finish my PhD. The only reason I want to, the only reason that really prompted me to do a PhD is I I want what I'm doing with my blog to be based on science. So I just don't want to be seen as a content creator who monetizes their content. But I want to be seen as a content creator who added value. And the way I added value is based on science. Love it. Yeah. I, I think it, it, it makes a lot of sense. And it's a very, it's a it's a great goal, right? Because you could go down, and I think uh, we've seen a lot of companies and a lot of channels go down this shock value kind of titles, but not back it with science, not back it with the research, right? Or just have superficial or high level research just to get the clicks and just to get the views. Um, and I think, yeah, we probably share, you know, some common goals as well. You know, I would love for our audience, our listeners, if you are interested in having a creative outlet in writing content in creating videos in doing podcasts or other things, you know, we've done a lot of the grunt work on the back end to figure out how do we get views? How do we build a community where, 
you know, like-minded or interested parties can view your content, can look at your content, can give you feedback, and, you know, we can help you along the way. Because uh, if you love creating content, or you love just talking to people, or you love just researching and, and researching into endurance sports and running, then you don't have to do the whole like website creation and everything else on the background, right? What you need to do is just find that audience of like-minded people that are interested in your content. So anything that we can do to help our audience out or help others, you know, find that content, we are there for. Absolutely. I'll second you on that, Kevin, because actually sometimes you don't have to, you know, launch your own platform to have an audience, but you can just what they do, what they call as guest posting, or you could just guest on podcasts rather than, you know, creating your own podcast because it's a lot of work. Ultimately, when you write an article for a number of websites, a number of blogs, people in that niche will recognize you, will hear about you. So rather than you creating your own podcast, well, you could just, you know, go to like Grace Mount, talk about your, your area and in that way, it's, you know, it takes less time, it takes less resources, but you still get the message out there. So, yeah, I second what you said, just try to contribute on platforms that are already existing rather than compete with them. That's fantastic. Yeah. An open invitation to our audience. If you want to contribute, you know, we are we are here to help you amplify your voice. So fantastic. Dennis, any any last words, any parting thoughts for our guests? I think that the parting thoughts is, I'll go without sounding cringy, is to just, you know, to discover what, you know, what, what you love doing and discover and f- look for an effective um, form of self-care, be it, you know, exercise or be it. My form of self-care usually is I, I take it to the extreme during weekend because I'm just in front of the computer most of the, most of the week anyway. So Saturday and Sunday is my self-care day. And my idea of self-care cover a range of issues. It's getting a Chinese steak away, having a Netflix <laughs> marathon, gardening, going for a walk. I, I really do it to the extreme on Saturday and Sunday just, you know, to just to stay away from the, from the screen. Because if, if you just keep on doing something, you know, like be it sports, if you're just doing it for the rest of the week, a... It becomes a chore and we don't want to live a boring life like that, that, you know, it's like you, you feel that you're a machine designed to deliver an output. So yeah, that's, that's my main takeaway. Take it easy. Have a Chinese takeaway. <laughs> <laughs> Great. And where can our audience find you online? Yes. Uh, so Kevin, they can find me on um, Sitegrudge. So that's, that's my main platform. I'm also on YouTube. I interview a range of people and hopefully um, one of these days I could feature one of you guys on, on DRH show, anyone from Raceman. Professionally, if you just Google my name, you'll find my university page and it outlines there my research area. I love to collaborate with people. Anything that has something to do with digital mental health, with resilience, with grit, social media, those are, those are my research area. Also, I'm, I'm on Twitter, so just... Um, look up my name and I'm happy to connect with you. I love connecting with people. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Dennis, for for joining us on the podcast. I'm sure that this is just the stepping stone to many collaborations because I think we share a lot of similar interests. So love the conversation and thank you so much. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Race Mob Podcast. Check out all of the show notes or find a running buddy online at racemob.com. Please subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts and leave us a review. 
Until next time, keep on moving.